Let us pray and ask for the Lord's blessings. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you did send us Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. We thank you that you did not leave the world in darkness, but did ordain its salvation and did give us the shining light of your Son. Grant that in this season our hearts be filled with joy for the forgiveness of our sins, that we ask that our heart of repentance would last throughout the year. May we know that unto us a son, a redeemer, a king has been given, and that in him we are more than conquerors in all things. Give us strength, grace, and patience to walk day by day knowing that in Christ we have been called to victory, and that your hand in all things upon us is for good. Now, we now petition you, O Lord, grant us understanding by your Spirit to be taken from darkness to understanding. Grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, if, if you've been here with me a, a while, you'll know that I often talk about the context of the passage. How it's very important that we, when we're reading scriptures, that we don't just take the chapter and verses as true breaks that these books that are written are written all together and they have a single theme and a single thought that's going on here and they're building upon one another. So as today we consider our gospel passage from John chapter 4, we can't just take John chapter 4 by itself without considering John 3. Now last week we preached on Nicodemus and all that was going on there and baptism and all these wonderful things that God was doing illuminating Nicodemus in spite of the fact of his preconceived notions of what the Messiah would do and how he would bring deliverance. But in this, we saw that Jesus talks about being born of water and being born of spirit, and that leads us to recognize that we are brought to salvation by his calling, and yes, we are brought to baptism. And in that, we are born both of water and of spirit. Now, we see that Jesus in John chapter 3, in the latter half of that chapter, the part we didn't cover last week, that we see that Jesus goes out in a similar area to where John has been baptizing, and his disciples are baptizing. And of course, the Jews, those that are always looking to bring division, always looking to stir up trouble, right they go to John and say hey you know Jesus is just down the river a piece right and he says he, his, he and his disciples are down there and they're baptizing people and they try to drag Jesus ministry before John as some sort of com competition against John and his call to repentance and there's a couple of things that happens here that's really important and one is that John declares Jesus as the bridegroom. Now that's going to become very important in our passage today, so take note, take note of that. But John also responds to these people trying to create division by saying, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Now this is very interesting because just following that, that paragraph, that, that dispute there, we see at the beginning of John chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made 
and baptized more disciples than John. Okay, so I'm just going to pause right there. So Jesus is down the river. His disciples are baptizing people. And it actually makes this, this comment in verse 2. Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples were. But disciples were being added. They were being baptized by Jesus' disciples. But when he hears that, that the Pharisees have heard that he has more, he leaves Judea. And he departed again to go to Galilee. So what, what, what do people who lick their finger and see which direction the wind are going to decide who they're going to follow, right? All of a sudden, Jesus has a greater following. So Jesus says, okay, I'm going back to Galilee, all right? And it says that he needed to go through Samaria. You know, the problem that we have is not people groups, but rather who we worship. You know, there is much divide today about people groups. Of course, many in the of the loudest out in the world have made the wrong distinctions with which to divide people. First, many di divide by what they call races. That is to say, they differentiate peoples by their skin color. God doesn't divide this way. According to God's word, there is just one race, the human race. The human race that descended from Adam. And after the flood of judgment, all the people today are descended from Noah and his wife. We can say that there are different tribes or nations that are descended from Noah. But all peoples suffer from the same problem. Sin. Now one group or nation may be by culture given more to one sin than another. But remember that all sin is derived from the first two statements of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Hath God really said, and you will be like God? Today's passage deals with the attitudes of division. We will see that Jesus is the only one who can meet the true needs that all people have. We see in John 4, beginning of verse 5, So we came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. Now, it's first of all very important to notice this. Jesus is wearied. For anyone who thinks for a second that Jesus was a spirit, he didn't come down in human form, that's wrong. Jesus was wearied. We're going to see in a moment he's thirsty. Right? We're going to see that Jesus is a man, and he's called as a man to die for our sins. And it says he, he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, i got to tell you, I thought about this a lot yesterday, and this, it's almost this bold, give me a drink. But I don't think that's how he said it. All right? I, th I think in, his, in, in the way that Jesus is, he was direct, but he said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? A woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, this dialogue between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman 
is filled with all kinds of historical baggage. Israel and Judah split during the reign of Rehoboam. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed aligned with Rehoboam, and ten tribes aligned with Jeroboam, and they make Jeroboam their king. Now, Jeroboam, you know, he becomes worried about where they're going to worship. He's thinking to himself that they're going to go worship in Jerusalem, and in that way, if they go to the Lord's temple, they're going to be reconciled back. You see, he wanted the kingdom, the northern kingdom, so bad, he wanted to keep them from going to Jerusalem and worshiping God and being reconciled. So much so that he sets up golden calves, and he even sets up feasts to compete with the feasts of Israel. What does he do? He changes the where and the how to worship. Samaria, the city, becomes the capital. And as it says in 2 Kings 17, Israel is judged by God for fearing other gods. They walked in the statutes of wicked nations. And they, they, they worshipped those gods. They secretly worshipped in high places. It says that they set up sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. They began to worship idols. And it started with a desire to separate and a fear of people worshiping God rightly. 2 Kings 17, 13 says, Yet Yahweh testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in Yahweh their God. You remember this morning in our call to worship, don't stiffen your neck to God's word. People of God, let us surrender to God's word. Let us be conformed. Let our minds be renewed to think like God. Don't stiffen your neck. Continuing on in 2 Kings 17, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. And they followed idols and became idolaters and went after nations who were all around them concerning whom Yahweh had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made for themselves a molded image and two calves and made a woman image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And, if you can believe it or not, if this doesn't speak to our day, and they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire and placed, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him in anger. So they went whole hog. They stiffened their neck. And in the end, what did they do? They took their own children and sacrificed them to their idols. People of God, we should be afraid for all the babies that have been sacrificed at the idol of self. Verse 18 says, Therefore Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Israel falls into every kind of wicked rebellion against God. 
And interestingly enough, when God brings judgment and the Assyrians come in and carry them off, they carry off a, a part of the people of the northern kingdom, the Assyrians repatriate their own peoples into the northern kingdom and over the centuries, the people of the northern kingdoms intermarry with the Assyrians and other pagan nations, and they worship Yahweh in a corrupted and blending of idol worship of other lands. The kingdom of Judah, represented in Jesus' day by the Jews, hold a very harsh, judgmental view of the Samaritans. The Jews believe that the Samaritans are unclean, and even a lower class of people. The Jews treat them like they are not even human. The Jews of the day would not touch a Samaritan, nor even drink after a Samaritan, which is why the woman says you don't have anything to draw with. Many Jews would even travel to the other side of the Jordan River, right? The most direct way to get to Galilee from Judea is to go straight through Samaria. Instead, what they do, many Jews will go over the Jordan River into the wilderness, walk in the desert so they can go all the way around and not come anywhere near the Samaritans. And, of course, all of this is going on, and this is adds to the tension in the conversation. And, of course, I would note this, people of God. It says in verse 4, but he, that's Jesus, needed to go through Samaria. Now, the truth is, could he have gotten there? He could have gone over to the sea and taken a ship around. He could have gone the way of everyone else and go out in the desert and around. No, what happens in this passage is a divine appointment. God's providential hand to redeem that woman and the people of Samaria. So when Jesus goes, he's going through Samaria to be in obedience to God, to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but also to the nations. So here we see that Jesus is not concerned with becoming unclean by other people. He is concerned with people who are not worshiping correctly. Jesus is concerned with reconciling people to the Father and seeing the reconciled worship God rightly, rightly according to the Scriptures. The Samaritan woman is surprised and even appears to bring a certain distrust and maybe even a reverse racism of sorts. The scriptures tell us in Proverbs chapter 10 that hatred often stirs up hatred in others. Proverbs 10:12 says hatred stirs up strife. And then we can say praise be to God, but love covers all sins. Jesus does not waver in his love to see this woman come to know the truth and to be delivered from her sins. He does not see a person of lesser value in any way, but simply a sinner that needs to be delivered from the bondage of their sins. Back to our passage in John 4, in verse 10, Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman doesn't know what Jesus is saying. She doesn't know the gift. What is the gift? Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Back in John, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get 
that living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as, a well, as well as his sons and his livestock? I'm going to pause right there. You know, this well today is still there. And it is still has spring water coming up into that well. So this well that God blessed when Jacob dug it has been bringing water to people for more than 4,000 years. That's amazing. And she's like questioning, are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus answered her and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. This conversation began because Jesus was thirsty. This woman is thirsty. She knows that she needs this water that springs to everlasting life. She questions if Jesus is greater than the patriarch Jacob who they are both, remember now, they're both descended from. Jesus answers that he brings waters that spring up into everlasting life. If you remember our Old Testament reading from today, the people of Israel, that's of course Jacob's new name, are thirsty and need water lest they die. In Exodus 17, verse 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of Israel. Listen to this. You know, when, when the woman comes upon Jesus, he is sitting on the well. Jesus is between the woman and the well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that Jesus is the rock that will be struck to bring the waters of life to this woman and all who are called. Jesus is the faithful husband who gives rest. If we come down to verse 16, Jesus says to her, Go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, that you have spoke truly. Suddenly, the conversation takes a turn. Jesus validates that he can offer the springs of water. But there's so much going on here. First, I want to use this passage to point out that it is important not to be like we discussed last week. Let us not be like Nicodemus and simply carry things into Scripture that are not there. We often villainize this Samaritan woman beyond what the text says. She's often spoken of that she has been continuously sexually immoral. But the one thing the text speaks to for certain is that the man she is living with now is not her husband. This is sin, to be sure. But with the other five husbands, we don't know if any died or what her role was, if any, of the divorces. Since most divorces in the ancient world, especially in Israel, were initiated by men, she may not have been the one at fault. But we, but we do know that she is living a sexually immoral life now. In any case, she doesn't have peace. She doesn't have rest. She's been let down by husbands. 
we should consider the work of Christ. Remember I mentioned that John 3 speaks to the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom, that this woman has had five husbands, and right now she has a false husband. Jesus is the true bridegroom. Jesus is the seventh husband. And unlike the false husband, the seventh true husband brings peace and Sabbath rest. You can hear the echoes of Psalm 23 too. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In the waters of new life, she begins to understand. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So here the Lord begins to open up her eyes. She doesn't have it all figured out, but she's beginning to see some things. So what does she do? If suddenly you become aware that, that you're standing in the presence of someone that is a prophet of God, you're going to want to ask a question. And you know what? She asks a very good question. She asks Jesus a legal question of worship. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she said, and do you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship? And Jesus responds by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you, excuse me, when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Excuse me, let me Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know that what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So Jesus comes in and he sets her straight. He says, you know what? You're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem. He doesn't mince words. He says the worship is to be there because salvation comes from the Jews at this point, and it's going to come through him. And of course, he says there's an hour coming where it's, you're not going to be on your mountain and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. He says this, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus speaks clearly to this woman that the Samaritan's woman, Samaritan woman's worship practices were false. That the worship in the Old Covenant, of which they are a part at this time, required worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and with particular methods. This worship then was to flow out all week long, and they were to be priests to the world. Now Jesus speaks prophetically, that true worshipers will worship in truth because the Spirit gives them new life. In fact, the Spirit transforms us into living stones of the new temple. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. People of God, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, worship is no longer attached to the temple in Jerusalem. But rather, we, all of us, the Christians across the world today and all of the Christians in, in, in history before us, 
we're all living stones in the new temple. So as we gather here today, we are the stones of the temple of God. You know, Jesus uses people, that is his church, to bring others to himself. You know, we see real quick here as we move on in the passage that Jesus' disciples return from buying groceries and are amazed that Jesus has been caught up talking to this Samaritan woman. And we haven't even brought up the fact that not only was she Samaritan, but she's a woman. In the ancient days, that would have been a thing. Jesus doesn't look at it this way. But it's also interesting that, that they're returning from buying groceries. Incidentally, R.C. Sproul makes a point about this passage that it was the normal practice to have your disciples not just be academic students, but also to be servants to the rabbi, both practically and liturgically. Now, as they come back, they don't really understand what's going on. The disciples don't understand why Jesus is no longer hungry. Verse 34 says that Jesus answered them and said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is fed by obedience to God the Father. Then Jesus turns his attention to instruct his disciples that they will participate in the harvesting of peoples to whom they have not done the work to make them ready for harvest. First the Spirit readies, and then he uses his people in stages to bring the harvest. Now this is real important, that God uses his people, the church, to reach the lost, to reach others. And that we don't do all the work ordinarily. First, the Spirit does the work, 100%, because he's the one that calls. But then even for us, we might be the one that, that scatters the seeds. Someone else might come and punch the seed down. Others water. We know this from Scripture. And Jesus says, you know, you're going to come here and you're going to do this work. And the Spirit's already readying the people. We're going to see that transform or, or come right before us, be revealed to us right here just a minute in this passage they're going to they're going to realize that Jesus is the Messiah but we also know this that that right after his death and resurrection Samaria is converted at, a, at an amazing rate the prophets God used his prophets to prepare them God used John God is using people all the time by his spirit to, to transform others and of course, he makes the point to them that he who, receive, who reaps receives wages and gathers the fruit for eternal life, that both he, who he sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Uh, this, this is real important. Sometimes we get this idea that, man, look at that over there. They're adding 10 times more people than us. I, I would actually care that we were adding any people and converting people and discipling people. Don't, be, don't, don't get caught up in where, where the hot spots seem to be. Let us be faithful to do the things that God is calling us to do right where we are. And let us rejoice together when people are converted anywhere and made disciples of. Of course, if you'd been in Sunday school this morning, when we talked about the Westminster Confession, we covered the the point where it says that the, that the church, that, that out of it, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, and that is because God uses people. The Spirit prepares them, and God uses people.
people. Not only to bring the word and to teach the word and to encourage one another, but to baptize and to bring us together through the table of peace at the Lord's Supper. All of this, we need to understand that our faith begins with the faith of others. And then God grants us our own ears to hear. Coming towards the end of this passage in, in John, verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of the city believed him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. I think verse 39 also lends itself to the fact that the woman was not simply of ill repute. Otherwise, she wouldn't have had credibility. Either way, God used the thirsty woman who needed the seventh husband to meet her needs and to bring others to belief. Verse 40 tells us, So that when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What joy, hope, and peace there is for us in this passage. Here this woman was thirsty. And we can come to Christ and have our thirst filled. Here's the question, though. How thirsty was this woman? How empty was her life? How empty was her soul? You know, a lot of times we often think that our friends are, are, that are not Christians are seeking God or that my friend is searching for God. Don't be deceived. They cannot seek God. Psalm 53, 2 says, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. The quest for God doesn't begin until the Spirit opens our eyes to the light so we can comprehend it. Why do we say the, the unbelieving world is seeking and hungry for God? The church father, Thomas Aquinas, can bring some clarity to this by pointing out the difference we see in unbelieving people all around us is that they are desperately seeking for peace. They are desperately seeking relief from their guilt. They are desperately seeking for something to fill their souls and lives. We look and see these people, and we know that only one thing will satisfy that hunger, only one thing that will satisfy the thirst within their souls, and that is the living Christ. People search not for God, but only for the things that only God can give them. And all the while, they are fleeing from him. People of God, the only difference in people is who they worship. Psalm 36, 8 says, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. We must pray that the Spirit of God brings 
the worshiper of idols out of darkness and bring them to the waters of life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for that woman of Samaria who brought the people of her community to the knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior. We thank you that even now, Lord, you are opening new avenues for the work of your kingdom. We pray for your blessing upon all who are so engaged. In Christ's name, amen.